This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I am confused, mostly. <laughs> and I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Sophie's Choice. It's beyond imagination. There are memories time cannot erase. It was a season of delight in a place called Brooklyn. The season of Sophie, of Sophie and Nathan, and a young man called Stingo. I love that the piece. Chris, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions, of course, help us continue the show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Sure. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there as well. Now, before we get into talking about this week's film, Dave, we have to, you know, progress the plot here a little bit uh, and our deep and rich fiction that we create here each and every week on this podcast. Yes. We need to make a choice because, Dave, the machine let you mm-hmm. go back to modern day, to the year 2022, yes. when you had, and I'm using air quotes here, COVID. I, you know, I'm still convinced the machine gave it to me. It, <laughs> it is airborne. Look at its eyes. You can tell they're shifty. It's they're constantly shifty breathing, eyes. right? Mm-hmm. It's small room. I actually do think I have a virus right now. We've been saying you should wear a mask, but he just, he won't comply. He, he doesn't think it's real. I, I don't really like to gender the machine, but sure, yes, it right. doesn't. Sorry. It doesn't really. It uh, decides to do what it wants to do. So here's the thing. Mm -hmm. Over the last two and a bit years, it's allowed me to chain you to a table for months upon months. If you remember back to season one. Yes. It uh, forces out into the far reaches of space. It's now sequestered us here in the year 1982. Like a jury. But why? Why don't we just force our way back through this, this door that the guests come through? You know, Why can't we just... You'd think we'd ask that question two and a half years ago, mm. but uh, we dumb. This is a good segue because who's also asking that question is one of our listeners because <laughs> Jeff wrote in <laughs> and asked us, why can't you go back to the modern day, mm. but your guests can? Because right? conceivably, they come and then go back. And to that, I say, point your plot holes out somewhere else. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, like all this, like uh, scrutiny into the, to the deep world that we have created. This is why I'm convinced we have the ability to sell a script to Netflix because it doesn't <laughs> need to make sense. They'll make it. Kyle. Wait until the series finale and I pull off my face mask to reveal that I've been the robot all along. <laughs> and what I got away with it too was for you kids and your darn it's, dog. Yeah. So the question is the machine lets them and doesn't let us. Oh, right. So I don't know. Plot. I think by the end of this episode, um, Dave, we have to figure this out. Do we stay or do we go? Qu- quantum something? Mm-hmm. Is it 
Quazon, Phazon, you know, multiverse, Scientology, mumbo jumbo. Yeah, yeah. We Spider Man. Right. Here's the other thing. We'll figure this out. We, there's one other thing we have to do because we forgot string to do theory, this. Right? <laughs> it's a, it's a combination of chaos theory and string theory. Well, strings so. are naturally chaotic because mm-hmm. you know they're always getting into knots. That's my theory. You are the Ian Malcolm of this podcast, Dave. I've always said that consistently. If you go back through the archives, every episode, you are the Ian Malcolm of this podcast. I, I can't even hear it anymore because you say it so often. You know? <laughs> you're at least the Jeff Goldblum. You're always like leaning on the desk with your shirt ripped open halfway through, all sweaty. It's, it's amazing. It's off-putting for me, but... He can still pull it off. I, I watched the science show he has on Disney Plus yeah. and I'm like, you know, he still looks pretty good for a crazy person. How does he just stammer for twenty five percent of the episode, or how does that? No, it's work? the whole thing. You believe he actually wants to know what he's asking about? It's amazing. <laughs> Acting. <laughs> Acting. <laughs> There's a. Anyways, there is one thing that we forgot to do last week in our discussion of Diner, because Diner is Barry Levinson's very first film. Yes. That he directed. And we do have another list that goes on on our letterbox page talking specifically about director's first films oh. that they've directed. We've talked about a lot, weirdly enough, in our short time as a podcast. Uh, specifically, I think 13. No, no, four, uh, 15. We've talked about 15, 15 films. directorial debuts? Yeah. Holy over, crap. you know, the three different years that we've covered. So the 15th will be Barry, Barry Levinson. Um, with our scores, Dave. It only ties with one other film, which is Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Mm, so, Clint. do you okay. think that Diner is better or worse than Let's Scare Jessica to Death? Uh, I guess worse. Hmm. I don't know. I just, I like, again, uh, we joke about the font, but uh, that was a pretty fun movie. <laughs> you were confusing Let's Scare Jessica to Death with, oh, uh, with uh, Play Misty uh, play for Misty me. For Let's Scare Jessica to Death was the weird vampire horror film. It was that film. shitty vampire f- movie. Sorry. I was thinking That's about what I mean. I was like so surprised when you said this. I'm like, really? You thought th- you hated this mo- no, other no, movie. No, this is better. Yeah, this is better than Let's Scare Jessica to Death. I was thinking yeah. it's because uh, Misty is Jessica. What's her last name? Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Uh, Je- Jessica Walter. Walter. So I got it mixed up. I'm, I'm going to agree with you here in this case. This is a film. I think it's probably a better debut yes. that Diner is, which means that it'll go onto our list in the number 12 position on the first time director's list. Basically above Let's Scare Jessica to Death, but underneath A New Leaf from Elaine May. What? So. Uh, yeah. Give me give me a quick rundown. Who Who is there? I mean, Spielberg's probably number one. No. Oh. Uh, number one is Being John Malkovich. Oh, number Spike two Jones. Yeah. is The Iron Giant. Three is yeah, Duel. Four is Lock Sock, Two Smoking Barrels, because we're two right. men. Five is Walkabout. Six is But I'm a Cheerleader. Seven is Payback. Eight is Titus. Nine is Play Misty for Me. And ten is American Beauty. That is our top ten so far. It's amazing. But there's a few, yeah. there's a few first-time directors we're going to yet to cover here in the year 1982, okay. so that'll be fun. You know, don't spoil alert. Spoil, you make it seem like you planned the whole thing. I right? didn't. Yeah, yeah. it's all a mystery to yeah, me as we go it's along. The machine. Of course, you're going to take off your <laughs> mask and be the machine. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, getting into the talking of this movie here, we probably should talk about our history with some of the people involved. We have talked about Alan J. Pakula, the director and yes. writer of this film before. So if you want to go into far more detail on that, I would encourage you to go and listen to our Clute episode. Mm-hmm. This is our first streep, though. I'm I, I'm pretty pretty sure this is our first Meryl Streep movie, yes. which is interesting yeah. that uh, it's taken over 120 episodes to get to her. 
Well, doing a little background research, you know, this is kind of her, not breakout, she's won an Oscar already, but breakout in terms of popularity because- uh, I, Yeah. Yeah, she's just kind of getting in like now. She's, she is yet to be the Meryl Streep yeah, yeah. that we know. She's like, just she's getting in She's still, what, f- five or six years into her career, like really, at and this point? Apparently, other than, uh, like she got, well, we'll talk about it, but she got Deer Hunter because of De Niro, but the producers mm-hmm. didn't want her in any films because they thought she was ugly. <laughs> Yeah, which is so funny that this film specifically calls out the beauty of the character, well, or so I'm told. Uh, Aryan beauty, but we'll talk about that. Too. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then she also had to beg for this movie. Like, she was not the first, second, or third choice to be the, the, the main lead in this movie. So she had to go and beg for a chance to be seen. I think people, yeah, I, when we're old, we take some things for granted. But as we learned with some of these actors, they really, uh, they really mm-hmm. work for it. You know, some of them. This is me stepping on your toes. What's your history with Meryl Streep? I don't know. Actually, I mean, everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows she's a mainstay at the Oscars. I actually am not, what do they call him? Streeper? (laughs) Streepy? Uh, I'm both a streaker and a streeper, okay? Not necessarily at the same time. I'm trying to remember. uh, Like, I don't don't know. You're not a streep stan is what you're trying to say. Yeah, I don't... uh, I don't dislike and I don't like. I think when she appears in a film I'm watching, of course, she's uh, great in it. But I don't know much about the films because particularly when I was growing up, she made films that I would not go to sure. the theater to watch, right? Um, yeah. So, I've never watched Out of Africa or Postcards from the Edge or any of that stuff. Um, Postcards from the Edge is great. Right. I'll just throw that in the right. Um, but- I didn't even watch... Uh, who cares? Uh, so, yeah. you know, I acknowledge who she is. I don't think that she's overrated, but I'm not a person who watches a lot of streep in the first place. it's hard because yes i think my first really introduction to her was by watching the oscars every year when she was on that run where it seemed like she really was being nominated every single yeah. year the longest uh, she's didn't matter. been if she was in a movie you're gonna be nominated yeah. if you're in a movie again you're gonna be nominated so it's just like she started just to rack up those nominations she's crazy man i i will be the first one to admit i have probably not even seen I don't know, a quarter of even her more famous roles. I will also be kind of the bitchy one of the podcast to say, if we look at the last 10 to 12 years, like, I don't know if there's like a great body of work Mm. uh, after um, The Devil Wears Prada. Anyways, that's me being a little bit catty towards Meryl um, Streep at that point. I'm just going to put that in the folder of uh, this is why the Oscars are a joke. Right. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's not that she sucks. I'm just saying, you know, there's an industry bubble. Right. And I'm glad mm-hmm. that female, like uh, women are being more and more sort of prized as actual actors and not just for uh, photographs that they can take. But, you know, there's a lot of great acting getting done and there's mm-hmm. like a short list of three people <laughs> right, who are going right, to win. Right. So. I will say this. I know exactly the first movie I ever saw her in, okay. which was Death Becomes Her which is still mm. one of my favorite films. Her, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, Bruce directed Willis. by Robert Zemeckis. Right. And it's her being wacky and weird and funny. And I think it's a great movie. No comment. So, yeah, yeah, I don't becomes her. Yeah, good. I like She Devil. The other thing that I want to bring up here very early is that this is on the short list of films, mm. Sophie's Choice, to have the title of the movie become part of what I'm going to call like the cultural lexicon or the vocabulary. Like even to this day, you will occasionally see like articles written 
or even people speaking, it's like, oh, it's a real Sophie's choice. Or like, oh, it's a Sophie's choice you have to make between these two what, things. What, what articles always are meaning, you reading? Okay, yeah. It's always meant like no, it's meant fine. to be like, it's, yeah. it's a choice can, between two tough choices, right? You can make up whatever right? you like, want to say on a podcast. Either choice yeah. is not ideal. <laughs> it's not. It is really part of, you use that as a phrase. It has become part of sure. phrases that people use. Yeah. Which is like a, this short list of films that share the same thing. Whether you've seen the movie or not, you know what is being referred to. I would say Gaslight is probably the mm. biggest one of those. Like that has become part of our lexicon. Swing, eat too many beans. Yeah. Right. Uh, this is a really a sliding doors situation, which no. is in reference to the movie mm. Sliding Doors. I never hear that. Yeah. Uh, going the full Monty, like, oh, like yeah. stripping everything okay. off. Although that's uh, fading. The big, one, yeah. the big one, though, that always still wrecks my brain is Bucket List. Yeah. Do you know about that? Yeah. About that that was not a term until that movie came oh, out? Oh, I thought that was a thing before the movie came out. No. So this is what breaks the brain. There is no recorded history. There's no newspaper article, book written, any record of anyone using the term came bucket list to mean uh, a list that you're checking off before you kick the bucket. Like that idea was around, yeah, but yeah. the actual term bucket list was not a thing before that movie came out. Which I think is super fascinating. Yeah. It was, it was a pretty good movie. One of Jack, it's fine. Yeah, Jack Nicholson's uh, last goes at it. Kick up the bucket, so to speak. <laughs> Not to Anyways, take too I just wanted to bring that up. It's like, it's how interesting is that some of these movie titles become something that people can say or reference, even if you've never seen the movie, you do know what people are talking about. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, we made some assumptions about this mm -hmm. movie. <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about that after the we break. We're but... fucking wrong. Yeah. The only other one I was going to bring up which is kind of, sort of, but I don't know. I, I wasn't confident on this, which is like um, referencing like something feeling repetitive as like a Groundhog Day situation. Oh, yeah. Some people use that one. as, a, as yeah. a phrase, but. I haven't seen it in a while. I wonder if it holds up. I've watched it within the last couple of years and I think it does. You know that that movie, by the way, to totally derail our conversation. What? Uh, we should do, <laughs> like we should had, do 1993. Like yeah. I know, I know. We should do 1993 if the, if the machine allows us to so we can talk about it more fully. There is a huge subplot in that movie that was cut out and that was, you know, before it went into theaters. Did you know that, that originally at the very beginning, he was supposed to be cursed by a witch and that's why he awesome. relives the day over and over again? Nice. I'm so glad they cut that out because I don't think it's needed. I think it's better when it's not anything specific. Makes sense for the 90s. That's, oh, yeah. 100%. That's absolutely how you have to write that. Hm. Good editing. That They should have won an Oscar for that. That's a good, uh, that's a good cut. Was that Ivan Reitman? I think no, Harold uh, Ramis. No, Harold Ramis directed that. Oh, it's not a Reitman one? Oh. Somebody along the Ghostbusters. It was a Ghostbuster somewhere in there. It was, it was one of the Ghostbusters <laughs> who was involved in that, for sure. This is what we need to do. We need to go and thank some sponsors here first. And then when we come back, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Sophie's Choice. What's the, what's the toughest choice you've ever had to make in your life? Um, to log in today to talk to you. <laughs> I know it can be tough out there some days, right? Oh, Sometimes man. you have to decide which child gets to live and other days it's like, do I want to talk to Kyle today? I don't know. It's a real Sophie's Choice situation here. I don't know. I'm not going to lie about it. I was just waiting for the text, me sick, period. It's like, All right, I guess we're not, not recording today. Well, I guess that just means I need to say that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. We have a new sponsor this week, Dave. I get to talk to you about Taproot Edmonton. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, so this episode is brought to you by Taproot Spotlight, a service that helps businesses and organizations pay attention to the people they serve. Taproot tells you the news about the people and companies that are important to you. Use that information internally to keep everyone on the same page or share it with the world in your newsletter, on your website and on your social media channels. Paying attention pays dividends. You can find out more at taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. That's taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. I'm actually a fan of uh, Ignorance is Bliss. And uh, yeah. I'd, Who knows about anything? Who cares? I, yeah, I'm, I like living in a bubble. You know what? I'm here to talk about Northwest Fest again, Kyle. Yay. Yeah. So our episode this week is brought to you by Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival. Kyle, uh, did you promise our listeners any uh, percentage points off? That does not sound like me, actually. No, I don't think that's course true. Not. Of course not. It's running in cinema this year from May 6th to the 14th and online from May 5th to the 15th. NWF is thrilled to finally be able to bring the festival back to Metro Cinema this year with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and a few fun surprises. This year's festival is a hybrid affair with over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music doc, This Much I Know to Be True along with dozens of feature and short film screenings online. Award-winning filmmaker Alexandra O. Filipe. Phil, Philippe. How would you, how do you Philippe. read this? Uh, can you see the phonetics? Alexandre yeah. O. Philippe. O. Philippe. Will also be in town to present his filmmaking masterclass. This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. Check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase all access passes or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. Now to pull the curtain back a little bit, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because as we're recording this, we do not see the full lineup, but I am interested. We checked out a couple of documentary, or sorry, I should speak for myself. I checked out a couple of documentaries last year and was really happy with them. So, and uh, not to, I don't know if this will be playing at the festival, but just talking about the podcast on the podcast, Dave, we should consider watching that uh, the most beautiful boy in the world oh yeah documentary that i think is finally available make a so. video as an addendum to our yeah, most watched angry at us. Yeah, most watched youtube <laughs> video of all time <laughs> i think uh, uh, did we just don't know get what a we're message about we uh, we <laughs> didn't we did not like the movie death in venice is that the movie yes which is considered like this great movie mm. and neither dave or i liked it because i think it supports pedophilia and uh, everyone who watches the YouTube video disagrees with well, us. Well, 50-50, so. if you look at it, it's 50-50. Okay. Uh, it's a virulent 50. And mm -hmm. uh, I think we just got another hate comment like two days ago. It's excellent. Great. We are stupid, so it's not surprising. <laughs> we, don't, we don't claim to be smart, that is for sure. Uncultured. Don't you know that uh, falling in love with a 10-year-old boy on a beach is art? Okay, well, we have just finished watching Sophie's Choice. You know, normally we jump in and I get you to describe the plot here, Dave. Yeah. But before we do, <laughs> I think we both have to admit to something here about how stupid yeah. we are. Well. Because we, th also, okay, here's my thing. For some reason, I have it imprinted in my head, two things that are absolutely completely wrong about Sophie's Choice. Yes. Number one, I thought that Sophie's Choice was a contemporary movie, like, you know, taking place in like the late 70s, early 80s. Two... I thought the Sophie's choice, like the choice she had to make, was whether or not to have an abortion or not have an abortion uh, and not be able to raise it because of the situation Something. of her time. Yeah. 
Both of those things are untrue. <laughs> this takes place in the 40s. And secondarily, I would argue, not to get political, her choice is actually far worse yeah. <laughs> than that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm right along there with you. I actually thought it was uh, going to be not a contemporary one, but sort of about someone who couldn't get an abortion because it just, you know, like mm -hmm. maybe it was she was going to be uh, Amish or something like that. So I don't know where this misconception comes from, other than we both haven't seen it before. You talked about the common vernacular about people using mm -hmm. Sophie's Choice. I don't, I've never actually read that, but if I had come okay, across well, I it, <laughs> it would have confused me because I would have, you know, yeah, it's still an ethical quandary, but... Uh, this is this is what I'm, I'm convinced of, at least for me, and maybe anyone who's listening can shed some light on this. I am convinced then that I watched something in my childhood that referenced something as being a Sophie's Choice that did involve abortion, and it just imprinted on me that that is what the movie then was about. We we just spent time. That's what I think. In our imaginary couch, both Googling why we thought this was a movie about yeah. abortion. And there's nothing. There's literally no links. No, there's literally nothing. There's, no, there's nothing that even suggests that that's what this is about. <laughs> crazy. I went to Twitter. We're not technically alone, but like we are in the vast, far, vast far minority, minority about yeah. this. So here a couple hours ago, I posted this Twitter poll. And this is what I said. I said, I'm doing a quick poll to test a theory. If you haven't watched the movie Sophie's Choice, what do you think she's trying to choose between? Wow. Choice one, get or not get an abortion to something else. And I said, please comment if you choose a something else. 99% of people. Of the 40 votes, which I know is not a huge amount <laughs> well, of people. statistically significant. You only need 17 for a deviation. But of yeah. the 40 votes, 20% uh, of them thought it was about getting an abortion. So that's oh, eight votes. That's pretty high. And the other 32 are like, no, it's something else. And of the four people who commented, all of them nailed it in one. It's like, isn't it about her giving up her child to like the Nazi death camps? Wow. I was like, yep. You're right. That's exactly <laughs> what this movie's about. But I did not know Correct. that. I, so anyways, we're in, we're in a very small minority of somehow thinking this movie is oh, not about man. what it's about. Now I really need to make a choice between whether you both live or not. What is this movie about, Dave? Why don't you tell us the plot? Well, you know what's interesting about what is this movie about? I actually have this question, you know, rhetorically, having finished this movie. Uh, mm -hmm. What is this movie about? You know, there are a couple of uh, lines. We have this naive, weird writer mm -hmm. who gets caught in a so-called love triangle. We have a uh, magnanimous, magnanimous, magnam. Oh my God. Magnanimous. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds weird, right? Now that we're it thinking does. about it. Uh, this crazy personality. Uh, and then we have this, I didn't even realize Meryl Streep was going to be an immigrant Polish uh, Nazi camp survivor. So as soon as nope. she started talking, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And so there are a couple of tales interweaved, you know, toxic relationship, naive guy who's trying to get laid, the uh, post-war generation of people just trying to live their life. And then they start threading the needle of the Holocaust. Mm. Why not? Why not talk about death camps in the middle of a love triangle? Uh, and then it further descends into a psychological analysis of, uh, you know, survivors and mental health and uh, all kinds of stuff. So th there's a lot. It's a cauldron. It's a cauldron yeah. of quandaries. In the end, then, what did you think of the movie? I don't know. I I'm, I'm unsure. I think that it's good. I think it's good that I didn't know what I was in for. I was yeah. joking with yeah. Helen. It's like, Walking into Schindler's List thinking it's about uh, somebody who's There's no guy making a list. Yeah. He's like, he's a Santa Claus dude. <laughs> Meryl Streep's great in it. I, mm -hmm. I had to also Google. I wasn't 100% convinced whether her talking like a Polish immigrant would have been offensive, but it turns out she nailed it. And this is something she becomes famous for, but linguistics. Yeah. For, for a while, I think there was, 
again, this could be one of those like Hollywood made up stories to sell tickets and stuff. But for a long time, no one knew what her actual voice sounded like because she did a different accent in every movie she was in. So there was this time where like no one actually knew what Meryl Streep sounded like. Well, apparently that also plays into why her career actually has these uh, dry spells. It's not just Mm -hmm. because people don't find her ravishingly beautiful, but because they couldn't nail down how to typecast her. Because she's so right. different all the time. Anyways, yeah, so I feel kind of like in the medium, I, I feel like maybe I, I can see how this novel, the source material would be quite impactful and powerful. Yeah. But I think, not to single them out, but I think that uh, for me, uh, Ghostbusters 2, Peter McNichol kind of dragged it down for me. I yeah. hated that character. <laughs> I had a really hard time following the narrative because he was the central I, I piece. I feel we're going to... No. Align at least on one piece here, Dave. <laughs> I feel bad because I actually think Peter McNichol is a good actor. Yeah, like, yeah. And other stuff that I've seen him and he's really good. So to to spoil some stuff that's going to come up here later on in the episode, there's a, a part of Pauline Kael's review that I really identified with. Which Apparently is like, she hates Meryl Streep. Oh yeah, she did not like Meryl Streep at all. <laughs> uh, she did not like Meryl Streep at all. Uh, neither did uh, Catherine yeah, Hepburn Catherine either. But Betty Davis loved her. Pauline Kael hated this movie. But secondarily to that, one part of her review that I absolutely agree with is that you can absolutely tell that this is an adaptation of a novel. Mm-hmm. And stuff that works in a novel doesn't necessarily work in a film. That's right. The comparison I want to make is between this and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is completely different source material and stuff. But if you don't know and have never read the book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it actually takes place being told from the point of view of, of Chief, the character Chief. And if you watch the movie, it's like, well, that's weird. It's like he's barely in the movie. It's like, well, yeah, because that works for a book because you're an observer. You're just watching things happen. You can comment on them and think about them and portray what is happening in that insane asylum. And I feel that by really focusing and using that voiceover and really portraying this Peter McNichol character as your main character actually doesn't really work that well no. because it's like, who cares? We don't care about him. Not really in this narrative. It's called Sophie's Choice. It should be her, Kevin Klein. He can be there. I think he still needs to be there as like this supporting character. Foil, yeah. But to use him as basically being the main character in the first half just feels weird and out of place. That, you know, probably works in the novel really well. Because then you can start making these comparisons between him having to choose between staying at home and coming here. And probably talking about the choice that the um schizophrenic husband has to make and you can start to make all these literary allusions and blah 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 mm-hmm. it doesn't really get focused on in the movie part of stuff you can really see the adaptation not working a hundred percent in this movie's case on the flip side i think that as you said meryl Streep is great in this i think i actually really like kevin klein in this movie too kevin klein's great in this movie too yes and so that's gripping and when we get to hear her backstory and it's shown what she went through and her ultimate choice that she actually does make yeah all that stuff is gripping. And then unfortunately you have to come back to the Peter McNichol and yeah. like, I don't care. I don't care about you at all inside of this movie. Like just focus on this stuff. So it's sort of a mixed bag. I am I'm leaning much more into like the positive territory here because I think there's enough to drive the narrative. But overall it feels super disjointed to me yes. in some scenes. Uh, especially because you focus so much on this like friendship that's building. And then all of a sudden it's like, now we're going to forget about all that. And for the next half an hour, we're we're just going to focus on Sophie inside of this tale. That's the thing too, right? As soon as we get into any of her anecdotal, I mean, you know, they also cast out because they, you, you realize 
as part of a survival strategy, she has to keep making up stories to get yes. to the next stage. So right. So she she's a lie. She's she's an unreliable narrator right. in herself. Right. So as we get into those scenes where we finally, after an hour, start seeing who well where she comes from. You know, it's almost like that is its own movie. I mean, that's the Schindler's List movie, right? Like just concentrating yeah. on the horrors of being subjugated to wartime anything. Never mind genocide, but just any kind of wartime drama from a civilian perspective is brutal drama. It's going to make you sweat, particularly if it's done well. And I think uh, some of it is done uh, very well. But having to bounce back into Brooklyn in 1940 or 1951 or whenever the setting is, it's jarring, right? And I could, you can, yeah, you can see that a chapter has been flipped and we have to restart right. the dialogue. I think it might have worked if they had developed the screenplay to have more of an empathetic connection to uh, Peter McNichol's character, but giving him a shitty, weird name, you know, having this narration that's not his voice, but like an old version of right. him. Yeah, yeah, There's so many pieces where like, yeah, whenever they bounce back, you, you, you know, you have to shrug all of a sudden. You're like, oh, I'm so in this. This is so brutal. I'm like, oh, uh, why is he talking? Why, why do I have to watch him <laughs> fucking walk down a street you know it's i mean that's the thing it's like you you, you've just encountered like this really harrowing story of her back Mm -hmm. of her history and like what she's gone through and then and then it's like a voiceover comes on of this like avuncular old man is like and i really learned something that day i'm like whoa like dude (laughs) like i don't this is weird i don't need to know what you learned about like i i just took what her story was why did he have to narrate them having sex I mean, it is so gross, right? Like they're finally kind of coming together and then this old man comes in and I'm like, I was engorged with Pat or whatever he says. And you're like, what the (laughs) fuck is going on right now? Well, this is the thing. Like, I'm, I, I, I never want to make like the. Uh, I don't want to be the absolute arbiter and be like, voiceover is never needed. Like sometimes voiceovers can be used very effectively, but like. I just don't think it's even needed in this film at any point. I don't think any of those voiceovers added anything, any new information or anything resonant for me. It's also like, have you watched the movie Cherry by any chance? No. What's Cherry, Cherry for oh, me is that a Tom one Holland most, one? Yeah. The PTSD movie? Oh, I haven't watched yes. that. Yeah. I thought it was awful. It was like one of the <laughs> worst movies I've ever seen. a lot of people did too. Yeah. <laughs> there are some defenders out there, but honestly, I was, you know me, Dave, I usually try to find the good in everything. And I like was loathing that movie by the end of it. I was like so upset by it. Anyways, one of the things is they use this voiceover all the time. And it does that thing that I extremely hate when they tell you exactly what I'm seeing on screen. Mm. It's like, you don't. Like, I lifted my left hand up. Well, it's basically that. It's like the truck hit the curb and then you see the truck hit the curb. I'm like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Like, I don't need you to narrow. I can see what's going on. It's the whole point. Like, it's a visual medium, it. you asshole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the same thing here. It's like, I was enraptured as I stood at the door. I'm like, yeah, I can like, you You're supposed to be able that. to see like, that. Right. To, yeah. I, you know, having a narrator to set this up as a book adaptation, the beginning could have worked. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't mind having a little context of how he's on this bus. It's a great way to skip, you know, probably the first chapter of, uh, not exposition, but character development for this guy and just be like, oh, I gave my last uh, couple of bucks to get to New York. You know, that classic, I just did my mm-hmm. arm movement, that classic old story of uh, give it your all uh, type of thing. And then even, you know, at the beginning when he meets uh, or uh, first goes into the boarding house and you don't have to spend too much time with Sophie and Nathan to, mm-hmm. you know, get to understand how crazy they are. And if you want to intersperse like some of those big time changes, you know, like they skip a couple of months here and there. I'm right. okay with that. It's not just the sex scene, but that was the most, uh, that was the worst one. But yeah, narrating what a person is actually doing on a screen is so dumb. It is such a dumb decision. It flies in the face of making a film. 
I mean, it's the antithesis of filmmaking, right? It, it also is one of my biggest pet peeves. I can sometimes forgive it if it's like a kid's movie. But if it's a movie made for adults, I always hate when they treat me like I'm stupid. It's like, don't. You can just show it to me. Don't feel like you need to. Her race eyebrow I know I'm means som- that I, she's slime. I know I'm sometimes alone in this, but I also hate that trope where like they flash back through different scenes in the movie that I've just watched when they like someone reveals like they're actually evil and it's like they flip back. I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like we don't, I don't need you to show it to me again. Like I understood like what's happening here. I like it when it's done intelligently. I mean, I haven't watched Usual Suspects probably in twenty years, but I like when it's done in a way that you have to watch the movie again and you have to be like, oh, these were always in there. And I hate it. I think when I was in high school, someone made me to go watch. I think it was Wild Things. Uh, and they mm-hmm. did that essentially in the after credits. It's like the whole movie, it's inane, stupid, you know, uh, just yeah. a reason to get Nev Campbell in a bra. And at right. the end, they're like, and Denise uh, Richards. And at the end, they're like, oh, by the way, we didn't show you any of this, but they actually did all of these things off screen. You're like, why the fuck isn't that in the movie? And it doesn't make it smarter. It's a dumb way to wrap something up. That I do hate because this has such a beautiful core philosophical this ethical discussion mm-hmm. i want to like this movie more <laughs> but it's just it's just hard it's a little tiresome well what well, <laughs> i think it does well like like this is i think the part of the movie that i really ended up loving once you discover fully like what she had to do which is like she has a son and daughter and when she goes to the concentration camp she has to choose which one is going to die pretty awful like i can't literally cannot even imagine being put into that situation it's like this real life trolley problem like in real life, like what are you going to do? So awful, awful stuff. That's probably why they call it a trolley problem. People got off the trains there. But that amount of trauma, right? Of like, I am the, literally I am the reason that chose that kid to die. Okay, so I have to live with that. And then also not ever really knowing for sure if my son ever survived. Mm -hmm. Like not really do I know if he survived or not. he died, but yeah. And then secondarily to that, then having the... You know tenacity or whatever however you want to describe it to get over to america and then basically be like you know what i'm going to do i'm literally going to hide behind sensuality sexuality and just fun like as much fun as i can have like that's how i'm gonna hide behind all this pain and trauma i think that that is something that i relate to having trauma and then trying to deflect that or pick your vice that you want to have to try and hide behind i think all of that is pretty engaging stuff and again meryl streep and i think even kevin klein when you finally discover oh he is crazy he is actually a crazy person literally a schizophrenic undi- like not getting treatment schizophrenic there's these two characters that are just like i think so sad lost and lonely who are probably awful for each other but also oh, weirdly symbiotic like yeah. need each other at the same time like it's this weird a very toxic relationship but well that's perfect for one another at the same time that's the example of a measured reveal both those you know and and mm-hmm. that's why that section of the movie works so well you know when kevin klein appears he's a complete nut and you're thinking mm-hmm. and we joked about this in the uh, last youtube video you know why can't so many why why is it hard for many broadway actors to break onto the screen and this this kevin mm-hmm. klein is kind of like that he's just so big and giant and yelling and yes. he's, you know he's like 
He's so theatrical. It's a little off-putting at the beginning because you're like, is he overacting? Like, what the fuck is going on? And then, you know, what is not two-thirds of the way of the movie, the brother finally calls and he's like, by the way, the reason why he's unstable is because he's unstable and he lies about everything mm. and he's actually insane. And it just brings the whole thing back and you can reflect and then you're like, oh, these pieces actually make sense. Same with Sophie's reveal. She's always uh, unsure of how to explain what's going on. She's so afraid of Kevin Klein's uh, obsession with killing Nazis. Like there's just so many uh, things that get folded into it. Um, and this is why, what is that guy's name? Stilgar? That's that's from Stingo Dune. is what they call yeah, him. Stingo. So Stingo appears and you're like, why is he, if he's supposed to be an A or not amoral, but a, a detached center point between these two extremes, he needs to be played differently. And uh, I don't well, know. Yeah, There's I, something. I, yeah. I don't off. know what the best option there is. Again, I think the character does need to be there to be like the um, thing that forces the, the wedge yeah, yeah. between the two characters. Like you do need to have that character there. And obviously is also the avatar to the original novelist, William Styron. Like that is who that character is basically. But again, in a movie, unless you are having this amazing, like, realization or like there's some sort of huge deep character progression which i truly do not think that that character ever goes through then to center the journey of the movie on that character just doesn't know favors because by the end it's like well you're not really any different than you were before sure you had this uh relationship with these characters but it's really her and him like the the sophie and nathan characters that are really going on this wild journey i was just it made me think about clute and how jane fonda is right like mm-hmm. she fucking kills it but the character yeah. Donna, this is like the, the donna sutherland thing right yeah. it's like he's just invisible. he's do these great women characters and win them oscars and then doesn't really do favors to like the main character quote unquote and i, I don't even know if it's yeah i don't even know if it's a male female thing or he just intuitively ends up focusing on the more powerful narrative regardless mm-hmm. of how the script is supposed to be structured but it happened in clute it happened in this the character we're supposed to be following becomes invisible and uh, it actually detracts from the film as an entire project because uh, it takes you out. Every time Donald Sullivan would appear in Clute, you kind of have to, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, like, all right, I, he's Clute. I, I don't want to be care here about right him. now. Yeah. He says something you're like, I don't, I don't really understand why. And I don't really care. At least this isn't called like Stingo's observation or something like I that. Bet they, like, why is this? I bet they thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like, why have a character who has a pseudonym and the pseudonym doesn't make any sense? Like, what what is Stingo? What why does that? I think I think they do say why in the movie, and now I forget what it is. It's I think they dumb. do reference it. Even if you gave him a human name, I think it would add mm-hmm. it would add an element where I could empathize with this guy more. You know, mm-hmm. if he's supposed to be this naive uh, kid who just doesn't get it, if his name's you know John Bobby, but he's from the South or from Virginia, so whatever it is, Billy Bob, you're okay because at least. He's a human being, but to give him a fake name that sounds more like a like something out of a comic strip, it's already it's already hard. It was just very hard to get through some of it. He should have been bringing around that huge painting from Ghostbusters too, and every Vigo. time he needed to make a decision, he just looked at him and was like, "Vigo, tell me what to do." Um, yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. I, I think it, it brings up some fascinating topics of conversation, but uh, as a film, I'm kind of like. Maybe not lukewarm. I'm warmer than lukewarm, but this mm-hmm. isn't isn't that great. It's kind of it's fine. It's yeah, fine. I don't think I would ever put this into like a great films list mm-hmm. for myself, but it's strong. I, I probably am on the level of recommending people check it out if they're interested. Just be kind of like under the impression and knowing going in, like it's half of a great movie in yeah. my opinion. No. Um, 
rather than a fully realized thing. This whole time I thought they were calling him Stinko. We, we should do some backstory here then first, and then we can have a few other bits of discussion. This movie opened up on December 8th, 1982. It is rated currently 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It has a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, a 68 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes it has a 78% from 41 critics and an 85% from 10,000 plus users. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can buy or rent it on iTunes or YouTube. Its budget was $9 million. It would go on to make $30 million at the box office, which would be $88 million today. Its plot description, if we ever had decided to read the plot description before watching it here, Dave, is Sophie is the survivor of Nazi concentration camps who has found a reason to live with Nathan, a sparkling, if unsteady American Jew obsessed with the Holocaust. All right, so <laughs> nothing in there about what we thought it was about. The presumption is that I can read. So Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that does mean, though, that it's time to play Guess yes. That yes. Tag. Ugh. Okay. This is, of course, where I don my favorite game show host blazer. I have the long microphone that Bob Barker used to use. And when you go and see films at the theater, you see the posters up on the wall. And normally there is a tagline on the poster to entice you to want to go and see that movie. I love reading taglines. It's just love how I, taglines. yeah, it's how I select films. I unironically un- do love reading taglines, <laughs> but have nothing to do with me going and seeing the film. So Dave, oh, I'm going to give you three options here. All right. One of these is the real true tagline. The other two are completely made up fictions that I have created. So do you think? But the tagline to Sophie's Choice is the unspeakable horror, the unimaginable courage, the unthinkable choice. Or is it somewhere in the middle of the unthinkable and the unsaid lies the choice? Or is it between the innocent, the romantic, the sensual, and the unthinkable, there are still some things we have yet to imagine? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with three. <laughs> I don't know. What makes you choose three? Um... Because the first two are exactly the same thing, <laughs> using different words. Shut up. I took five <laughs> minutes trying to come up with something here this morning. You're correct. It is number three. It was so long. I was like, I can't make two that are this long and make it sound no. right. I don't I actually really hate this tagline, to be honest yeah. with you. Because usually when you say between something, it's two options. You're between two mm-hmm. things. And here it's four. Between the innocent, the romantic, the sensual, and the unthinkable. There are still some things yet we have to imagine. Well, this is my point at the beginning. This is not one plot, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. reading the plot synopses, you know, that is technically what this movie's about. But this movie's, you know, it's... Or the book, perhaps, or the screenplay or whatever. It's, uh, yeah, it's a great cauldron of ethical problems. So, plus, uh, you you wrote the first two exactly the same. You just use different words. But <laughs> gotta try harder. <sighs> <laughs> The immovable object meets the unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. Fast five. The stars. Yeah, it stars <laughs> Meryl Streep as Sophie, Kevin Klein as Nathan, and Peter McNichol as Stingo. We've talked about Meryl Streep. We've kind of talked about Peter McNichol in Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> he was also in Ally McBeal, if you ever watched that TV show. No. But uh, Kevin Klein. Tell me about Kevin Klein. Yeah, I like Kevin Klein. I guess Fish Call Wanda came out. As I was getting yeah, into Fish film. Yeah, Wonder is one of my favorites, And too. I was a big Monty Python funny. guy, so anything John Cleese is in makes me giggle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I love sarcastic people. <laughs> I know. I thought he was British for the longest time. He's not. Um, but he has that very uh, posh mm-hmm. uh, American accent. Wait, what, what do you mean he's not? Like, as in he's Welsh or Scottish or... I think he's American. I'm pretty John sure. John Cleese? 
No, Kevin Klein. Oh, Kevin Klein's American. He's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he can do affectations. I was like, John Cleese is mm. from England, dude. Uh, Kevin Klein, he, he's interesting. I thought he would be bigger. Like, he's he's got an Oscar. He's been nominated yeah. for a lot of things. He's a stage actor, which explains why he's so over the yeah. top. He doesn't have a lot of... Yeah, he well, especially, like, I would say, like, the last, I don't know... 15 years or so. Like, he hasn't been in much, I don't think. He's got credits. I've seen. Yeah, but I've never heard of any of them. Well, he's... Okay, there's another comparison. This other person does not have an Oscar or anything, but it's like Carrie Elwes for me, Mm. which is like, good-looking guy, could could can act can be in good things but like i can go like 10 years without thinking about them and yeah. like, then they pop up randomly oh it's carrie always or oh, that's kevin klein he's just randomly showing up in this movie i'm watching or this tv show i'm watching i think carrie always was too pretty when he first started mm. and then because he has this uh he, he kind of looks like a sarcastic asshole like just yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he had to wait until a certain age to play those roles i suspect other than the robin hood uh, parody and right. uh kevin klein i wonder uh, as we talked about last week, if he's just too Broadway, too theater, I mean, he's just, he's so big. Being into right? Broadway, I do know a couple of the Broadway shows he's been part of over the last decade. So he does pop up there occasionally. Yeah. And he's been nominated. He's just never won. Uh, no, he has three Tonys, I think. Yeah, I don't know how many, I'm pretty sure he's won at least one. Yeah. Yes. So, he, you know, he's, I, I like him. I think he's a great actor. But mm-hmm. as soon as this. He's also a voice in the a animated. Bob's well, he's in Bob's Burgers, yeah. yes. Uh, but he's also in uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, which right. Is, right. I have this weird love affair with that Disney movie, even though I know it's, it's problematic. Yeah. I mean, this is his first movie, which I think is interesting. Um, is it really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So nobody knew who he was. And he is very young. I, it took me about five minutes to recognize him. <laughs> At the start, I'm like, oh, Kim Klein doesn't look like this, but he does. And then your favorite critic uh, said something about him, which I think is wrong. Uh, he said there's a mustache thing with Kevin Klein, that he always has a mustache when he does comedies and he shaves it off when he does dramas. And mm-hmm. it's because Ebert, even though I love this movie, forgot about this film where he's right. in a drama with a mustache. Well, sometimes those those little witticisms don't have to be absolutely true. Uh, they they just do. Have to Otherwise, feel just true. don't say it. <laughs> uh, oh, the only other thing. It's like there's another thing that that uh, uh, Ebert wrote once that I think is also broadly true. Do you know who the character actor M. Emmett Walsh is? No. You would know his face if you looked him up. M. Emmett Walsh is on like has like 150 plus credits. But his thing was like, if M. Emmett Walsh ever shows up in a movie, it's at least a three out of five. <laughs> like, it's like, for some reason, it's like he always makes the film a bit better. Mm. Apparently, Kevin Klein was offered Batman, Tim Burton's Batman. But he declined, so we almost had Kevin Klein Batman. That would have been a very different movie. Super I think weird. Michael Keaton fits the role better. But... Yeah, because yeah, he's so brooding. There's just, I yeah. mean, I know he started off comedy too, but he's got a broody face. Why so he's such a good bad guy now. Yeah. I just, I was just trying to think if there's something, there's some anecdotal thing about Meryl Streep. I'm pretty sure she has a photographic memory. She, she learned to play violin in two months for a film. She learned Polish <laughs> and German for yeah. this film, right? For this movie. It's I've like, read that too. Uh, I don't know. There's a film that she won in Australia where she didn't affectation of Australian from a native New Zealand speaker and she mm-hmm. won an Australian film award because she did it well <laughs> and well you know what that reminds night, me of I went on Reddit yeah because I was like I don't know anything about Polish or German is like the German sounded good I, I was expecting it to be a dub over and yeah. I was like holy shit but I'm not a German right speaker right. naturally so I, I googled it and they have these threads like native Polish speakers what do you think about Sophie's choice they're like it's very good 
Like it's this is very, as close as possible. I've never heard a Hollywood accent as close to real Polish as I'm yeah, like, yeah. what the fuck is going? Which on? is bizarre. Yeah. Well, no, what it reminds me of is so if you uh, are get into animation, especially if you go back into the old Looney Tunes stuff, the original stuff, most of those voices are by this guy Mel Blanc, right? Mm-hmm. Used to be known as like the man of a hundred voices or man of a thousand voices, something like that. But I saw this conversation with I think it was Hank Azaria. Uh, who does voices on The Simpsons? Also and has a hundred voices. Yeah, <laughs> also has a hundred voices. But he says, "Here is why Mel Blanc is amazing and will never be topped, or is, has yet to be topped." Which is there is that short. I forget which one it's called, but it's like that duck season, wabbit season <laughs> short where it's Daffy Duck and, and Bugs Bunny, where there's a moment where Daffy is pretending to be Bugs and Bugs is pretending to be Daffy. And he says he doesn't just switch the voices. He's not just doing Daffy, Daffy Duck's voice on top of Bugs. It's Bugs Bunny doing Daffy Duck's voice and it's Daffy Duck doing Bugs Bunny's voice. And that is like next level. So hard to do yeah. as a voice actor. Right. Because you have to. It's a completely different skill. And it's like no one has ever come close to that level of precision in voice acting since uh, since that time. And I wonder if it's like just Mel Streep has that ability of like, oh, I have to do this accent. So I was going to nail it. Yeah. Anecdotally, I think so. I mean, it sounds like she, uh, most of her, many of her Oscar nominated and winning uh, roles, she's demanded some rewrites. So she mm-hmm. she's kind of. um You know, we talk about Dustin and we talk about some of these big things. She sounds like she's a pretty intense person uh, where she'll, if she chooses to be in a film, she like gets absorbed into what this character is supposed to be like. And so I read that one of the reasons why Pauline Kael and and a lot of feminist writers don't like her is because, I mean, it's the 80s. There aren't very many strong female characters. So she would build these fully developed people, but they tend to be bad guys or cruel or or silly or whatever. But apparently a lot of them, she would take the script. She'd be like, this is so paper thin. Like Kramer versus Kramer, apparently she rewrote the entire thing. She said, this, what you've given me, this woman is like, man wrote it. It's too cruel. This is not a human being. If we do this together, you need to, you know, and Dustin Hoffman apparently hated her because she rewrote some of her entire dialogue by herself. And sure. then afterwards, well, he wanted to talk. Like, well, he was that's the, the one thing. Was so afterwards, they became friends. Tootsie is not a comedy. Right. Like Jesus Christ. I mean, I think like, we've talked extensively on here before. We've talked before about like method acting, right? Mm-hmm. And how I'm kind of turned against this whole idea about method acting. She didn't like it either, <laughs> but yeah. But th- that's what I mean is I think there's a difference between coming in. Like, you've read the stories now of uh, uh, God, Jared Leto being Morbius and like, I can't go to the bathroom. I'm too in character. You have to push me with the, like a wheelchair. I'm like, I'm fucking Morbius, but whatever. There's that kind of level of asshole. Yeah. But then there's this type of thing where it's like, no, like I'm, I want to fight to make this character a more well-rounded mm-hmm. person. I think it's going to make the movie better and setting by your position. I don't think that that's wrong for actors to come in and having that kind of dialogue with the director or screenwriter, that sort of thing. Um, I think that's just in tune with like, if we're going to have this mean anything, people have to care about this character. Yeah. It's well, I mean, I don't know if it's a right or wrong thing. It's just a personality thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm surprised uh, Bridges of Madison County that her and Clint would get along. (laughs) Sure. Um, And I'm also disappointed she was in Don't Look Up because uh, she clearly didn't read that script. Because it's a piece of shit. Easy, easy payday for her. Easy payday yeah, for her. Yeah, she, uh, she was classically trained as an opera singer. Did you know that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, although I've heard through the grapevine. Oh. So uh, she's, she's sung on film a few times. She's been in a couple of musicals. Mm-hmm. A few musicals, actually. But I've heard that in the prom, the one that was on Netflix, 
This, not, I'm, I'm, this is not. This is something like I'm saying for a huge criticism. I'm just saying, uh, talking about the opera singer, is that she was actually overdubbed mm. for a couple of her singing lines. It's so it's not completely her in that film. Well, it is a fucking terrible movie. So, <laughs> uh, uh, and then the only other nerdy. Well, tell me thing. how you really feel about the prong, Dave. <laughs> the only other thing that I thought I should bring up because uh, you and Matthew were talking about Mamma Mia. Apparently. The sunglasses she wears in that movie were the same that she took from Devil Wears uh, mm, Prada. Yeah. Who cares? Let's move on. Mamma Mia, good movie. I don't <laughs> care what anyone says. It's a good movie. Just good old fun. Okay, so the cinematography for this movie is done by Nestor Elemendros, whose top three other films are, according to IMDb, I guess, Days of Heaven, The Blue Lagoon, and Kramer versus Kramer. So those are the three other movies oh, he wow. was known Brooke for shooting. Brooke Shields and uh, who is the guy? Yeah, what was his name? Who cares? It is Brooke, Brooke Shields, though. Written by Alan J. Pakula. No clothes on. <laughs> All right. Written by Alan J. Pakula, based on the novel Sophie's Choice by William Styron, and directed by Alan J. Pakula. I, mean, I have to say his name at least three more times in this episode, Dave, because it's fun to say. Pakula. <laughs> <laughs> is it a Lange Pakula? Is that how I say your name? So the novel is published in 1979, written by William Styron. Born in Virginia, his mother dies of breast cancer when he was a young boy. His father suffered from clinical depression. So it wasn't the happiest of childhoods, let's put it that way. Goes off to college, does join the Marine Corps, and is promoted to a lieutenant. Is about to get shipped off into World War II when the Japanese surrender. So he never actually has to go. So he goes back to college, gets his BA in English. He then takes an editing job at a newspaper, but like hates it so he intentionally gets fired that's according to him uh once he is fired he sets to writing his first book called lie down in darkness which gets really great reviews and that sets him off in his writing career he'd write novels essays and some autobiographical stories sophie's choice is based on some real events in that he himself did go and stay in this boarding house where he met a polish woman who was single and he noted that there was these numbers tattooed on her arm. Once he left, though, he never stayed in contact with her, never met her again in his entire life. But he kept thinking about her. And then finally, one day, he says, I think there's a story here that I need to involve and made up a backstory. And then that's how Sophie's Choice uh, got written. Although I will say, I also saw that some people say that uh, this bears a bit of a resemblance to an actual story that happened to a Romani woman that was reported on too. So I'm sure this stuff happened all the time about say, the actual choice I'm talking about. Like that thing actually probably did happen. Okay. If you do any reading about yeah. that period, his, I mean, it's probably happening today. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty par for the course when you talk about war crimes. I love how happy this episode has been so far. So the movie follows basically the same plot as the movie from what I can tell. The book was met with some pretty great reviews. It also had a fair bit of criticism leveled at it. A few countries even outright banned it on the basis that it either was either too overtly sexual or that it addressed anti-Semitism that that country did not want to admit to. Mm. <laughs> on the topic of anti-Semitism, and I completely acknowledge that I'm about to step into this huge hornet's nest, but I thought it was proper to bring this up. Some Jewish critics do take issue for the novel and how Styron in insisted that Al Auschwitz uh, in particular, but the Holocaust in general was merely this, I, I say merely, but was only a symbol of the evil of mankind and not that it was an evil directed at a certain certain ethnic group. This is a point of view that Simon actually agrees that that is what he wrote this novel about. He would double down on some subsequent essays that he would write about this. 
that the Holocaust should not be looked at as this failing of Christianity's general anti-Semitic views, uh, and that it's symbolically exactly the same as American slavery. So there's a lot of balls in the air here, I realize, but that was his point that he was trying to make. The critics, their issue here is that this doesn't allow the grappling with the stated goal of the Nazis in particular, of that they wanted to kill all Jewish people. You're kind of brushing that under the rug, that that was their stated goal. And this is the real tricky thing. While owning people as slaves is obviously wrong, America's slavery was not like we're trying to wipe out an entire race. That was not what slavery was. So trying to put those two things together actually does disservice to both of those those things. They're two separate issues, both wrong, not the same thing. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Dave, if you want to step into this hornet's nest, but that's what some of the big criticism for his novel was when it came out. I don't know. Hate and anger come from fear. That's why we're seeing this mm -hmm. push to extreme conserv conservative, but fascism and uh, xenophobia mm -hmm. now more than ever because uh, people don't have work and people are scared and always want it to be somebody else's fault. Yes, the final solution or whatever the names, the few names that went under of uh, finding out anybody of a particular religious faith and, uh, faith and killing them is of course abhorrent. There's a reason why it's uh, still uh, held up as the standard of human evil. But it happens every day. It's happening in Egypt. It's happening in Qatar. It's China happening right in China. It's in Africa. We don't get a lot of news about all the civil wars and the, and the uh, fights over there. But that's, it's just how it works. Russia does this, you know, I mean, half the thing about the Ukraine, I mean, it, it is essentially an ethnic war, which we can't delineate because, you know, they actually look very similar and they have a very similar rooted language, but these things are so fucked up. And so then if we want to compare it to slavery, the only difference is that if the Germans decide in which they kind of did, that if a Jewish person had blonde hair, big muscles and blue eyes, they kept them. You know, they didn't burn them all, right? And so it's a really fucking weird thing to talk about, right? Because it's like talking about who actually, you know, pressed the button in the gas chambers. You know, it's not fucking Hitler, right? It was somebody part of that army, of that ideology. So there are too many layers for us to talk about in any thing. Yeah, I, th I think that's the hard thing here. And I, we don't have to spend like a great deal of time on this because I don't think either of us are like <laughs> masters of this issue. But from what I can gather from reading the couple of things when I saw that there was these criticisms about it, which I do kind of agree with, which is when you deal with things in too general of a manner, when, when you say it's like, oh, it's just like the evils of mankind, you kind of let the specifics slip through the cracks then in that case, which is like, yeah, it is like 100% it's the evils of mankind. But also it was, you know, this group of people who came into power and made it their mission to do this thing in particular. You start to kind of lose that if it's just like, oh, all people are evil. So we can just move on to the next thing in our in our class here. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't be dismissive. You're right. And, uh, and certainly keeping it too ambiguous can lead to that. But I think as well, the danger on the flip side is when it's too narrow, we think we're not responsible. So if we talk right. about the Holocaust and I'm not German, I'm not blonde, I'm like, well, that's somebody else's fuck. I'm not Jewish. That's somebody else's problem. I acknowledge it's really bad, but I have to uh, worry about this food I need to eat today. And I, so that's, it's a problem, right? Uh, watching this film, it's like when you watch Schindler's List, you walk out or any film about the Holocaust, you walk out with this brutal sense, right? Of tragedy, empathy, sympathy, whatever it is. Like you just feel broken because you have to see something 
Uh, would a European person feel the same way watching what the Japanese did to Korea? Sure. Would they think about what the Mongols did to all of Asia and and, and Eastern Europe in the 13th century, right? They say, I, I don't know, right? I, I don't know how to answer that question because there are, you know, war and, uh, you know, ethnographic historians who like look at all of this stuff. They don't get a lot of voice, but Hollywood loves this story. Well, yeah, it's something they come back to you all, all the time, which I think is that easy out in some ways, right? Wherein like Hitler is such the ultimate evil person, mm -hmm. right? It's such a shorthand, right? So if you're in World War II, it's like, of course he's evil. Like, look at him, what he did, mm -hmm. what his points of view were. Like, obviously, he's the evil one here in this case. He's almost so cartoonishly evil that you well, can't even propaganda like, in fiction machine, nowadays. Right? It's hard because it's like, ooh, like this is. It's, it's, it feels like weird if you tried to write someone as Hitler nowadays, because it would be like, ooh, that seems a little over the top. To, to broaden this out a bit, I guess what concerns me a lot, talking about this stuff in present day, whether it's, you know, Russia's occupation, like the violence against Asian Americans, Asian Canadians that are going on on like a seemingly a daily basis. It is remarkable to me. I mean, I don't know. I, like, I'm not perfect either. I don't want to make it sound like I am. But like, wow, having watched the amount of movies I have, read the amount of books that I have, because I'm so smart. But, you know, having taken in all this fiction and nonfiction in my life and not seen in present day of like, uh, why are we still doing this? Like, it's 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 so easy to use like an entire ethnic group as a scapegoat that it feels like, did we not watch anything in the past? I know this is exactly the playbook that happens. I don't know. It feels weird to me. This is the power of doing the broad stroke, even though the cost is that we can just associate with it. This film is trying to do that, right? By mm -hmm. making Sophie not Jewish, but her still having to confront this decision, we have to grapple with the idea that it is just something in us, not only to be evil, uh, but to make these decisions based on our survival. And I think that one of the problems with sort of our privileged existence in North America, and not just to make this like a white and colored or straight thing, but just North America in general, is that we very seldom are put into this position. I, I, maybe if someone wanted to research and give us information about the Great Depression, where people are actually starving on the streets and the, the level of violence and the cruelty that would have emerged out of a period like that, that might be the only major thing. We could talk about the Civil War, perhaps. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, Europe and Asia have been in that mode of survival since their inception. <laughs> if you look at Chinese philosophy, most of it is not like the Greek philosophers. They don't think about the abstract. It's all practical terms because the kingdoms kept switching maybe every hundred right. years. So they were in this tumultuous state of almost permanent sense of war uh, for a large part of the history. And so when you read their uh, tracks, regardless of some of their ethical conceptions, particularly against women, it's all practical advice. You know, how do I make it to tomorrow? How do I feed my family? What's the best way for me to coexist with people so that, you know, things are not stolen from me? Whereas if you read uh, Aristotle and Plato, it's like, what is reality? Right? Like, what is mm -hmm. truth? If I look at this cup, is it really a cup? I'm like, fuck off. Right? Which, which I, which, that is why I think there is so much pushback to philosophy in the Western context, which is like, yeah, you're, you're debating about what a cup is and I'm starving to death. So why do I care? <laughs> now, anyway, so to bring it all back to this film and, and, and evil, it's like, uh, you and I, we, we try to read, we try to uh, be kind, we try to be nice. Like I, I'm mouthy, but I try to help people. Mm -hmm. But if someone threatened to kill my kid 
Or if, right, you know, yeah, if yeah. someone pushed my mom off a fucking subway platform, I'm not going to be nice anymore. No. No. no <laughs> and you all of be, these concepts of like doing the right thing, they change. Go out the window. Right? So, you know, if that's specters well, I, out there. I, I, I do think what this movie does confront, though, I think in an interesting way, and I'm, I'm sure the novel is able to delve into it a little bit more, is that concept that she has to confront where she's like, well, I'm not Jewish. Why is this happening to me? I'm not Jewish, right? You can mm-hmm. pass the buck along until it's actually right in front of your face. My dad was a racist. Why right. You, and, but, yeah. and her, yeah, yeah, her exactly. dad is like violently racist. But then you have the Kevin Klein character who, in his bouts of madness too, I think is shown to be almost like a survivor's guilt sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, why wasn't I over mm-hmm. there? Like, I would have fought for them if I had been over there. Whether he would have not, who knows? But at least there is that weird survivor's guilt. I grew up in North America. I don't didn't have to go through all these hardships. And I feel like I should have. And you did. And we're with each other right now. And I feel almost jealous of you because you, ha- you had to go through this. This is another like positive point about this film as they unravel that and we see, we see why they're like when they're in love, we see why they're in love. And then we learn Mm -hmm. when they fight, why it's so violent, you know, when she lets him into the, when she lets, I keep calling him Stilgar because I read too much Dune, uh, Sting, Stiggy, what's Stingo, Stingo, stupid, stupid name (laughs) into his, uh, den of Nazi hunting. And you're like, oh, this is like a different level. He's not trying to find out who she is empathetically. You almost get the feeling like he's entrapping her because he's going to kill her because she's probably a Nazi. And then you're kind of like, oh, that maybe that is true because yeah. she was not a Nazi perhaps. But when they do Worked the reveal of who her yeah. dad really was and you realize she never lied about it either. She just talked about how she loved her dad. You know, it's that stuff's great and mm-hmm. it's really well told as a story. I just wish Stingo wasn't in it. Well, regardless, the book is popular. So, of course, Hollywood comes calling. And since we, I should say, since we last left Alan J. Pakula, he's had a bit of a roller coaster of a career. <laughs> last season, of course, we were in 1971. And so we talked about Clute. His highs over like the last decade had been the Parallax View and All the President's Men was going to be the biggest one. But he was coming off of these two films in a row that hadn't like super impressed critics. The first was starting over, which starred Burt Reynolds and Jill Clayburgh. The movie did make money. It did make money, but most critics disliked it as it felt like a bad sitcom uh, stretched to feature length. Sounds like a Burt Reynolds movie. A Burt Reynolds movie. And then his the last film he had made right before this had been this one called Rollover, which reunited him with Jane Fonda. This had the double whammy of both being not really critically liked and it didn't make any money. Uh, plus, it was nominated for some Razzie Awards. Nice. Oh. Well, they were that old? I didn't know they'd been around yeah. that long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they should be abolished because they're stupid. Um, so, <laughs> so but he not the needs Oscars. Win. The Oscars are great. No, the Oscars are, are, are a <laughs> fount of wisdom and, and uh, legitimacy, of course. So Don't hate on my celebrities. This... It's not their fault. They just give them bad material. This is when I go and pitch and watch, um, watch Sandra Bullock's acceptance speech at the Razzie Awards. And it's so funny. So he needed this win. He sets adapting this novel. A few actresses that he has in mind to play Sophie. And we already kind of went through this story about Meryl Streep coming in and basically begging to be cast. Demanding. Begging. She says begging. That's actually her words that she used. So it gets released. Generally positive reviews. Gets nominated for five Academy Awards, including a nomination for Streep, which she wins. uh, Her second Oscar for for this movie. We blew uh, Dave's mind last week when we mentioned that she was in The Deer Hunter, (laughs) which she was nominated for. Didn't win. She actually won for Kramer versus Kramer. That was her first award that she won for. Uh, It was also nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Score. Lost in all those categories. And that's uh, kind of the quick history of this film. I... I, uh... 
I read that piece. I, th- I don't know if we've talked about this, but she originally, Meryl Streep auditioned for King Kong and Dino De Laurentiis mm-hmm. apparently turned to his son and in Italian said, why did you even bring this woman? She's so ugly. Right. But she speaks Italian too. Why not? And she responded in, <laughs> in Italian, something like, this is just who I am. This is what you get. Fascinating. So the only reason she got yeah. Deer Hunter is because De Niro saw her in a play. And he was like, right, you yeah, need yeah, to yeah, cast this woman. It's pretty interesting. Also, full circle, she was up for Batman. So, <laughs> As Batman. Yeah. yeah that's but she mean. demanded a rewrite and they were like, no. no this is a bit of a thin character. Like, what is this? <laughs> who is he? Like, Who is the Batman? We now need to make 15 of these over the next 20 years. Okay. <laughs> Is that is Batman? I'm trying. I'm trying to think. Is there a more rebooted character than Batman in in the in the short time period? No. Like technically, Bond, you could say, has had a bunch yeah, of like reboots and stuff yeah. like that. But like, I don't think there's been any character that's had as many. Especially over the last ten years, there's been three. No, four different Batman technically in the last yeah, ten years. Yeah, Affleck, Bale. Uh, what's his kid's Pattinson, name? Pattinson. And then uh, there's another one. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, doesn't matter. Oh, not They have uh, somebody. Does not matter at all. I will say, though, talking about Batman, there is doing three roles. One? There are three roles now that two different actors have won Oscars for playing the same role or the same character, which is it just happened for the third time at this year's where we have Ari- Ariana DeBose winning for mm. Anita and West Side Story right. and Rita Moreno had done that. Marlon Brando and um, Al Pacino winning for, ah. or sorry, um, uh, Robert De Niro winning for playing Vito, Vito Corleone. Corleone. Okay. And then we have uh, Heath Ledger and uh, Joaquin Phoenix winning for The Joker. So those All are the right. three roles. They were both. Those the are three Joker. roles who have won for playing the same role. Weird. Isn't that weird? That the Joker is up there with Vito Corleone <laughs> and Anita from West Side Story. Oh, to be fair, <laughs> both Jokers are really good. Dark Knight is yeah. actually a good movie. And, uh, you know, Dark the Knight Joker's is, yeah, not sure. a great movie, but Joaquin's pretty nuts in that. Joaquin is great in it. Yeah. I will. I will. Yeah. I don't love that movie. No. But you, you can't deny that Joaquin has. Joaquin's Joaquin chops yeah. right he he crazy you want to go method yeah. you go Joaquin I'm pretty sure for gladiator he actually stabbed somebody in preparation for that scene <laughs> that's actually what killed Oliver Reed he actually got stabbed right in the chest <laughs> yeah yikes it's hard I, I I mean we watched it on the couch but I watched it pretty late last night I was surprised by it because we're both dumb and we mm-hmm. didn't know what it was about so it is a lot to kind of chew on we've covered most of the interesting things we haven't done this the last few weeks um i've been trying to bring this more in here just on a technical level i actually do love i do love how pakula frames some of those mm-hmm. shots there's that really cool one in like that the conductor you know, swirly tunnel thing that's oh, like yeah, backlit yeah, yeah. and everything very kubrick very kubrick very kubrick thing yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's also that time where he's coming in and like kevin klein staying in front of the windows oh like, the conducting, conducting and he has like beautiful. the six reflections yeah. and stuff there going the in like that's super beautiful and the illusion for the schizophrenia and uh mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a beautiful shot. All the um, Holocaust, you know, changing the tone and, and uh, having and a different And the color palette. scheme changes when it's the back, yeah. when it goes Smart. into that time frame. It's just, yeah, it's just heavy-handed maybe. There's just something about it that's, uh, yeah, I just wish I liked it more. <laughs> sure. I mean, the one thing too is that the outright dickishness that Kevin Klein has towards that Stingo character when he finds out he's from the South. Oh, man is basically how you treat me from coming from a small town. And I think it's <laughs> pretty hilarious. If I, if I knew so. the accent, you know I'd use it. Go for rock and metal house. <laughs> Anyways, so, you know, I'm just as backwards as the next person. Um, no, I mean, that, that scene was crazy. 
It was interesting because you get to take that ride where you love and hate Kevin Klein. I definitely identify with that a little bit. It's fun to be a, a snarky asshole. That's at least four fifths of my personality. The the other note I put down here is when uh is is it it's his brother, right? Kevin yeah, Klein's brother doctor. who reveals that he's actually I like how he says, like, listen, I'm not asking you to spy. Just but I want you to do this like so you're asking me to spy. Like <laughs> don't 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 preface this by saying that you don't want me to spy when that's exactly that's exactly what you're asking me to do. It, it is interesting how much like you read this from like Meryl Streep's accounts and like other people talk about this, about like how quote unquote unattractive she was by like conventional Hollywood standards. And yet in, everyone in this movie wants to have sex with her. Like the Nazis want to have sex with her. Both men want to have sex with her. So it's a very interesting choice. Yeah. Beauty. And uh... I, I should point out that I don't think she's unattractive. I'm not making that statement. No, no, no I know. I, I, I was, I don't know. I just, I think the, the influence of propaganda, like you, you, you brought up, is interesting, you know, psychologically that Hitler is so cartoonish. I don't think he was. We made a cartoon out of him to Maybe hate him more, true. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I mean, I think he's disgusting. I don't want to make it seem mm. like I think he's a nice guy, but... Uh, he had some good points though, right? <laughs> what you're trying to say? Um, no. But, you know, the idea of beauty, you know, hearing this anecdote about Dino De Laurentiis and then he casts, is it Faye Dunaway? No. Uh, no. Um, we talked, we've about, talked about her already. Fuck. Jessica Lang. Jessica, Jessica Lang is in that. Yeah. You know, this idea of what makes a person beautiful. Michelle Pfeiffer couldn't right. make it because she was too perfect. Like, that stuff is so strange to me because I think yeah, characters it, it should be. how you have to be like right in that right zone. Yeah. Because I think there was an interesting thing you brought up. And the more I think of it, I think I agree with it. That Michelle Pfeiffer probably was considered too beautiful to be offered good parts. Yeah. Um, I, I, you can say the same thing happened with Marilyn Monroe and, and her Hello, years I mean, too. We'll get into a flame war. That's an old term if we talk about her acting. But she's great in Niagara, but most of the time <laughs> she, she, she just looks like one person. Yeah, and, and you have this thing like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is too pretty. So he miss he loses about six years of his career because, sure. you know, he's in this middle. And now that he's kind of chubby and uglier, he's doing all the big dramas and everybody respects mm -hmm. him. But he was always a great actor. I mean... If right, you look right, at his right. early work, he's he's fucking insane. He's amazing and everything, right? Uh, Carrie Elwes. I mean, he's not that same level, but when you have someone, you know, who looks a certain way, then whomever's producing the film will have their own preconceptions about what the public want to see. But the, there's an irony in that with, uh, you know, the Aryan, the irony of German, the German Nazis uh, idolizing Swedish and Nordic features. <laughs> mm. <laughs> right? They're like, we have to be six True. foot five and blonde. It's like, you aren't, right? I mean... <laughs> Uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's a thing, right? Like they only talk about her beauty when it comes to, um, the Germanic thing. And when it comes to Kevin Klein and, uh, <laughs> the fuck's his name? Stingo. Stingo. <laughs> when it comes to them, they're more talking about her sexuality. You know, they're not mm -hmm. often talking about her, the perfection of her features. They're talking about how, True. you know, she has this, uh. This aura and, and kind of, I mean, I, I think Jane Fonda is a beautiful woman, but I think that happened in Clute too, where the character of the actor shines through whatever they're supposed to be like. You know, we know that she's supposed to be a beautiful prostitute, but it's not her beauty that stands out on the screen. Meryl Streep did the same thing, which is why it's interesting comparing to two films that Pakala couldn't do that for the male leads. And I don't know what that's about. I mean, All the Princess Men is entirely men, so that, that mm -hmm. was fine. But as soon as the female character, he, uh, in those two films, he lost it a little bit. I don't know. I don't know why that happened. We're done here. The uh, machine said we do have to wrap things up here. So let's get into some critics' choice here. This is, of course, the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. 
So Roger Ebert loved this movie. He gave it four out of four stars. He writes in part, We don't know this at first as Stingo's odyssey into adulthood is replaced in this film by Sophie's journey back into the painful memories of her past. The movie becomes an act of discovery as the naive young American, his mind filled with notions of love, death, and honor, becomes the friend of a woman who has seen so much hate, death, and dishonor that the only way she can continue is by blotting out the past and drinking and loving her way into temporary oblivion. It's basically a three-character movie, and the casting, as I suggested, is just right. Meryl Streep is a wondrous Sophie. She does not quite look or sound or feel like the Meryl Streep we have seen before in The Deer Hunter or Manhattan or The French Lieutenant's Woman. There is something juicier about her this time. She is merrier and sexier, more playful and cheerful in the scenes before she begins to tell Stingo the truth about her past. Streep plays the Brooklyn scenes with an enchanting Polish-American accent. She has the first accent I've ever wanted to hug, and she plays the flashbacks in subtitled German and Polish. There is hardly an emotion that Streep doesn't touch in this movie, and yet we're never aware of her straining. This is one of the most astonishing and yet one of the most unaffected and natural performances I can imagine. Wow. Which uh, accent did you want to hug in this <laughs> movie, Dave? Stingos, of course. I mean, it's nothing mm. like a good southern drawl. I might just be a southern racist, but... Uh. <laughs> Years ago, I uh, made a friend online, and then we decided to make a call, and this uh, woman laughed at me because we say a boat, but she's from yeah, Virginia, yeah. and so she says, mm -hmm. a bat? <laughs> Maybe so self-conscious. Fucking accents, man. This is also, if uh, I've had American friends call me out on how me and Canadians say sorry, mm, yeah. right? Because Canadians say it with an O, a sorry, yeah. and then uh, Americans say it with an A, ah. sorry. Well, the other thing that's Alberta specific is Alberta says hey instead of A, which I think is very strange because like... Mm. Everywhere else I've been, whether it's BC or Toronto mm -hmm. or wherever, you know, all Canadians say A. I don't know what, where that comes from. But Albertans all say, hey, it's, I think that's very interesting. I don't know where the H came from, but there's something about maybe cows. I don't, I don't know. Horses. <laughs> there's something. <laughs> Shoveling all that hay anyway. So. so what are you doing? Hey? As yeah. we said, Pauline Kael hated this movie, mm -hmm. but this is how she finishes off her, her write-up. She says, what Pakula never figured out was how to get all this crazed romanticism in motion. There's nothing to move the picture forward during the scenes in which Nathan discovers that Sophie has look homeward angel in Polish, or Stingo receives leaves of grass as a present from Sophie and Nathan, or Stingo recites Emily Dickinson to Sophie, or the three of them have an epiphany on Hart's Crane's Brooklyn Bridge. The movie is a novel being talked to us, and Styron's novel is all come on. The book has the kind of plotting that points relentlessly at a character's secret, and then has to have the character lying constantly so that the lies can be stripped away. Styron does a dance of a thousand veils with what he regards as the mystery of our time. The movie, following the book, is a striptease. Styron builds the novel towards momentousness, but it's a structure of titillation. Your favorite word, Dave. And maybe he's afraid we might be tired of Nazis. So he works to nab us. He sweetened things along the way, throwing in gothic goodies like the Pink Palace. The whole plot is based on a connection that isn't there, the connection between Sophie and Nathan's relationship and what the Nazis did to the Jews. Eventually, we get to the mystery, to Sophie's choice, and discover that the incident is garish rather than illuminating, and too particular to demonstrate anything general. When you read the book, you can see that there are no unmarked cards in Styron's deck, and you feel you're being played for a sucker. The inert movie takes the book so seriously that you may feel it's Pakula who's the sucker. That's how it she Oh, so convoluted. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to listen, but I didn't understand any of it. She's, she's sort of like becoming a bit... Uh... 
overbaked in the way she describes this stuff. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, she could go uh, on a little bit. I, what, what I always love is that she is actually seemingly, whether she did or not, I don't know, she makes it seem like she's read every book that a movie is based on. Ever, like, Any ever review I've read, it's yeah. like, I've, I've read this book and I'm going to tell you about the, the the difference between the book and the movie. Whether she did or not, that, that's unimportant. What I do agree, what, I was try, what it kind of points to is that, yeah, as an adaptation, I do think it fails in many parts where it does feel pretty inert when we're in those situations with the three of them in many of the scenes. Mm -hmm. And then it finally gets that momentum when we are seeing her story and seeing the two people's relationship. Nathan is kind of the wet blanket or not Nathan. The uh, Stingo is the kind of the wet blanket in this whole situation. No writing and getting something across in a film is such a difficult task in editing. And when you adapt a novel, I don't know how big this novel is, but presumably, let's say it's two, 300 pages, maybe five. I don't know how epic this thing is. And you try to squish it in to, uh, I mean, this is still a long movie, like two and a half hours, but- Two and a half hours, yeah. You know, uh, presumably trying to develop it into specific acts. This one you can definitely see. You can almost see, yeah, you can almost see where the chapter ends and a new one begins. Any of those uh, side shots where they're like in a- hammock the three of them together mm-hmm. you can see how a writer would make that into a, some self-reflection of their relationship and you don't get that I, ironically there's no narration there it's just a right right 20 second clip well it, it's also interesting too you can i would be shocked if styron's inspiration was not the great gatsby in many of those mm-hmm. scenes because it feels so great gatsby-ish to me at of, least, uh, uh, God, I'm trying to remember Daisy, Nick, and uh, whatever the else that guy's name is. Anyways, about the guy coming in, like, falling in love with the other man's woman. Yeah, like, yeah. that—that that is basically what this movie is. Yeah, we, we couldn't speak on the book because we don't read. But I was just going to say, too, like, Paul and Kayla, you spent all your time watching all the prequels and set up films for each of these. So you have the time. You could have read this book. I'm kind of disappointed you didn't, frankly, Kyle. I, I would assume at this point. Read the, uh, just listen to the audiobook, I guess. <laughs> Dave, do you think this holds up and is it still culturally relevant? That is the question we ask every week. That, this one's a tough one. Uh, I think any narrative, not just surrounding the Holocaust, but any narrative about ethical problems holds up if it's done well. And those scenes in this film are done well. So in one sense it is, but I don't know. I just, I just didn't like the whole project in its entirety. So it's tough. I don't think it holds up that well, frankly. Um, yeah. It's, the, the hard part for me is I think that Streep's performance and even Kevin Klein, I think that those are enough for, for me to say that it does mm. again with like an asterisk next to that. Yeah. Like, so I think elements of this hold up for me, I have to be a firm yes on cultural relevance only because again, the name of the movie is still in the cultural zeitgeist mm. a bit. So whether that's going to be rain for the next Nazi four word? years, did I don't know. Just use the Nazi word here. I mean, it sounded like you're spitting. No, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't argue that. I, I just uh, there are just different and better packaging of the sure. same ethical problems. So, uh, it's okay. I, I, I will say this uh, though: in the latest version of the American Film Institute's ooh. 100 Best American Movies of All Time, it is rated at number 91. So mm. it is on that cusp. List. Cusp. There is an opera based on Sophie's Choice that was written by composer Nicholas Ma, which premiered in London in 2002. Mm. And yeah, so there's still things being made out of the source material and the movie itself. I'm just trying to imagine this as an opera. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Stingo, why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's basically what they're saying. Pretty much, right? (laughs) I walked into this room and I like your dress. I wonder if Pavarotti ever performed Sophie's <laughs> Choice. That's that's really the question. He was, he was too busy uh, 
getting stuck in the butt with a saline solution, apparently. <laughs> right. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel, which matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini review of the film. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes to this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Let's get to rating this movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give Sophie's Choice? I'm going to go with a three. Uh, hmm. I guess my wish was that this could have been, right, a four or five, mm -hmm. um, but I think it falls a little flat. But I have to give it sure. credit because uh, the acting, for the most part, is on point, and most of the actual drama around the choice is uh, harrowing. Very important that I got through that. But otherwise, I don't know. It's uh, it's just fine. It was fine. No, I I basically agree with you. As is my thing i normally rate things like half <laughs> a star more than what you want to do which is true here i'm going to rate it a 3.5 out of five uh it doesn't fully nail everything it's trying to do but the parts that work i think really do work for us that will of course average to 3.25 we'll have to round that down to a three out of five for our for our official list which then means it's going to enter our list at the number eight position so it's in the top 10 for the time being, but uh, we have only watched 13 films so far for 1982. That being said, we should probably find out what we're going to be watching next week, Dave. So I'm just going to push this button here. Oh boy, Dave, there's going to be a lot to talk about next week. Uh, we are going to be watching the 1982 version of Annie. Fuck. That is somehow directed <laughs> by John Huston, which always blows my mind that John Huston decided to direct oh, the musical man. Annie. I, I have told this on this podcast, but I did try to watch it with my son and we had to turn mm -hmm. it off. So sure. There, I will say this. I don't think it's a travesty of a film. It's not good. <laughs> I'm going to say it's good, but there's a, some, uh, some great choreography with uh, some of the people in there. But we'll get into that next week about how, for some reason, they decided to make Annie more racist when they adapted it to a film. <laughs> and I don't know why they decided to do it. They were preparing for the inverse, which apparently was also a bad movie. Um, but uh, as <laughs> right. they say, will will the sun come up tomorrow? Bum, ba, ba, bum, 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 bum. That's copyright infringement. I also have to be extra cancelled because I have the opinion that I don't really like hearing kids sing. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's that's a thing. <laughs> wow, wow! Just it's true though. Just press stop now. Yeah. Anytime I hear a kid's no, choir, don't like, even this you can't be, defend it. Just let it go. This would be better if it was an adult scene <laughs> as this. a child. So, uh, death in Venice. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, all right. So, do do we stay or do we go here, Dave? Do we stick around for another week or do we try and go through this intergalactic portal? Do you have a door handle? Is it one of those movies where we need a magic door handle? Oh, you're right. There is no handle on this side of the door. I don't know why I've never noticed that before. Well, you know, you are a... <laughs> you call me a Nazi? Is that what you're going to no, say? No, I was going to say a knob, but I just... Uh, oh, okay. that's good. I, that was a good joke. I, that, was, yeah. that'd be, that would have been a great button to end the episode on, Dave. <laughs>
I like she devil.